This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's distinguished conversant is Professor Hans-Georg Müller. He is a professor of philosophy at the University of Macau, China, and he's been running this YouTube channel called Carefree Wandering, which I've been getting a lot out of. He talks a lot about identity and authenticity and how to be self, and he's kind of a Taoist, and he's made a few videos that have gone somewhat viral, and he came into my radar, and I reached out to him, and I was fortunate enough to land an interview. We talk about identity, we talk about what it is to be a virtual person in this virtual world, and ponder aloud if that is any more or less virtual than human beings have been all along. George is an excellent thinker, a wonderful conversant. He's got a book out called You and Your Profile. If you're interested in learning more about his work, go ahead and follow the link in the description, and there is a discount code if you use that link for 20% off. That's down there in the description. So without further ado, here is Professor George Moiler. When did China first land on your map? When did you first... Good question. Well, as I said, I studied Chinese studies or sinology, as it was called, um, and in the 1980s. And at that time, which is very much the opposite of today, uh, China had a very good media, positive media image. This was after 1978, you know, when China's opening policy started. Deng Xiaoping, I don't know if you know this politician who kind of kind of sort of the Chinese Gorbachev or something like this, who opened up China and introduced all these market reforms. And so that was like uh, all the reporting about China was like at that time, like super positive in the West. Uh, and um, so a lot of people uh, have just interest in China because it just had this positive profile going to our uh, philosophy topic here, right? And um, so um, when I started uh, studying Chinese, when was that? It was something like 1984 or so. Um, in undergrad? Or in a, as an undergrad, yes. It was like the most popular, basically, subject. There were like even – they had like um, – before, like there were maybe 10 people or so enrolling in that and then uh, per semester. And then that year there were more than 300. So it was like a big kind of a fashion that was... Uh, so you, you, you got into it for the girls then? That's <laughs> Well, it's not really that much a girl subject. Uh, actually for not like whatever you have to that then you have to do like uh, actually like romance languages that's the best for yeah that's true yeah okay or literature right. or something like this so chinese was kind of a mixture there's also some nice girls there as well yeah but, yeah yeah and, and why did it once you started getting into it why did you what what did you find in there that you wanted to keep on going and and burrowing yeah into? so 
what if what I started finding not there was I was never and still I'm not very good at Chinese so that was always a problem for me it's such a language is so difficult for most foreigners I mean some speak it very well but uh, most have great difficulties including myself and that never really went away so in the I I, I never really got good at actually modern spoken Chinese, so I kind of veered right at the beginning toward classical Chinese. And the difference is, is similar to the difference between Latin and Italian, right? So um, uh, I just turned towards the written language in which all the old and philosophical texts are written in, and I also had philosophy as my minor. So my interest very soon basically switched from China to Chinese philosophy, uh, and um, so uh, yeah, so that that was um, that that already happened very early on, and I was fascinated by the classical Chinese language, which again is something very different from the contemporary spoken language. So it's a completely different way also of studying, right? You spend like hours with just often one character. Uh, just to find out what it means and definitely hours to just with with a few sentences and um, so it's a completely different way of dealing with language and dealing with text than if you do like modern Chinese and whatever read polit political stuff or read literature or so it's very different and yeah so um, uh, I got more and more interested in philosophy and less and less in China as such. And um, um, yeah, then I eventually, uh, I, I switched from Chinese studies to philosophy. I had the chance, I, I, um, I did my, my MA and then my PhD in Chinese studies in Bonn in Germany at the University of Bonn. Uh, and uh, but I was always also developing uh, an, uh, an interest in philosophy, and then I got my my first job. I basically got uh, still at Bonn, but then I had the opportunity to to um, spend a year uh, on a scholarship at the University of Wisconsin in Madison uh, with some hmm. colleague in Chinese studies, a professor there, Bill Nienhauser. And um, while being there. Uh, I this was in 1999 2000 uh, I got um, the opportunity uh, to uh, get a job at a very small university not very well known in Canada Brock University St. Catharines Ontario and um, they um, they have which was rare and still is rare in the US or in the West they had a small philosophy department specialized on comparative and specifically Eastern philosophy so uh, again, that was kind of another dream or at least wish come true. I could switch from Chinese studies to philosophy mm. uh, uh, because as I said well, because of the reasons I mentioned, number one, not that good in contemporary Chinese language, and number two, interest in philosophy uh, so that was what I wanted to do and then i uh then I uh, took that job there and lived in Canada for about nine or ten years. And then I got uh, the offer to um, through a colleague I knew and that we, who had this similar project that already existed as there in Canada, namely at another university in Ireland, to also build up a philosophy department with a focus on comparative and particular East Asian philosophy. Graham Parks is his name. They hired him first. Uh, and uh, he was a major figure in Chinese and Japanese philosophy. And um, 
So basically, on his initiative, they hired me there too, to, as I said, with this purpose, uh, to do something kind of unique in Europe, to have this uh, comparative Asian philosophy department there. And, and that lasted for a few years. There were problems, mostly the, ma the major problem was that the I Ireland went bankrupt. don't know if you remember that. Uh, in 2009, uh, when um, and in Ireland, the whole university system is public, right? So uh, if you're, if the state is literally, which they were bankrupt, then of course uh, that's not good for a public uh, university system. So there were lots of problems there, uh, and then in 2014, uh, I got the opportunity to grow here to Macau and then I took that opportunity so I've been here since January 2015 that's uh, in short my my life story or my when, academic history which is it feels like you're a pen you're in a pinball machine of the world you're just <laughs> yeah. bouncing yeah. all over the place yes. Yes. when you say comparative philosophy I I imagine your job as a philosopher at, in that um, mode of thinking is to try to get Socrates and Confucius to have a, a conversation. Right. That's the original idea of it. Yes. Really? Okay. Yes. Is that is that an impossible project? No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, um, basically, you work, everyone who does philosophy works somehow comparatively, right? Uh, because mm. at least in Germany in particular, Okay, maybe I shouldn't have said that because it's not really the case in Anglo-American philosophy, which is heavily analytically oriented. So it's just about, you know, uh, uh, trying to express yourself very precisely in some sort of more or less artificial language and uh, mm. express certain propositional truths. But the um, European, uh, I'm not trained in analytic philosophy at all. Uh, and... Um, my background is basically continental philosophy. The German uh, philosophical tradition is very strongly historically oriented, right? So you study basically the history of philosophy, and then you're, as a philosophy professor, you're kind of supposed to, according to the old traditional German understanding of philosophy, to actually develop your own philosophy out of your reading of the history of philosophy, and thereby continue the history of philosophy. Huh. So... Um, in this way, you have to, um, you know, look back on all the other philosophers, and if you do that, then you are automatically comparing them, right? Yeah. So yeah. you see, oh, this happened when whatever from Plato to Aristotle, uh, or this happened then from Kant to Hegel, and then you know whatever uh, to the 20th century, and so you're always comparing, uh, and you develop your own thoughts out of these comparisons, and. Um, but it wasn't compa called comparative philosophy, right? It was only at that point called comparative philosophy. I think that probably had to do with com the notion of comparative literature, which was probably predating it. That, and that was the idea that, oh, we're not just doing the Western canon. Uh, we're actually including other philosophies, which was when I was a student still, basically still not impossible, but hardly possible in uh, Western philosophy departments, in particular not in Europe, right? Because the the notion of the canon was still so, still so strong mm -hmm. that um, basically Chinese philosophy was mostly not considered philosophy. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it was something else, whatever mm-hmm. religion or anthropology or something like this, right? You mm-hmm. can do these things, but that's it wasn't really considered part of philosophy, so you couldn't really do. Um, um, you know, do a PhD thesis on a Chinese philosopher, and not even a comparative thesis, right? Uh, because, yeah, then you were not really <laughs> working mm. with what was considered the, the real philosophy. So, so that was a process that that happened within um, the past 20, 30, 40 years that, um, and I think, of course, it's a good development, that now it, it becomes uh, much more normal uh, you know, uh, to common uh, to to also do what you just mentioned, work on whatever Socrates and and Confucius uh, in in a philosophy context. Is uh, there in a, a in the Eastern philosophy tradition? Is there the same imperative as in continental philosophy, where you build on the past, where there are these string of big names that are building upon each other? Yes, there is also a very strong canonical tradition, and that goes way back, right? So this idea that you have a certain core body of classics, um, that's very much the case in the Chinese tradition, and um, uh, that's the case in Confucianism, that's the case in Buddhism, that's the case in Taoism. Uh, all All of these traditions are strongly built around canons. There is maybe somewhat less an idea of the of the evolution of this canon. It's maybe more like, you know, you have to go back to the canon and kind of, um, you know, try to get to as clo- as close as possible to its original meaning or so. But the, this uh, this idea that you're working with in a tradition that has a historical dimension is very strong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And. This is a kind of a broader topic, but with I, this is just my imagination speaking, but with the denigration of the canon or the idea of the canon in the West, as it is happening, at least in kind of the United States university system, the idea right. of the canon is basically dissolved or on the right. verge of being dissolved across right. um, my society. It seems like that is happening at the same time that people are becoming more and more adrift and less and less connected to a history, to a past. What What are your thoughts on the necessity or at least the benefit of having a canon? Well, first of all, it's not really the case that the canon is kind of totally uh, dissolved. It's partly just being replaced by a new canon, right? Okay. Uh, so yeah. there's always a kind of a, um, a struggle about what is which is canonical and which is not, and that of course was always the case, right? Uh, um, and now it's maybe more dynamic. So um, I think on the one hand, um, of course, it's good that there is kind of development and fluctuation, and I'm happy to see that you know, as I just described, that now you can do Chinese philosophy uh, in in a Western context, for instance, right? Or that you can do other uh, philosophies there. Uh, but I think it's kind of how to say um, dishonest, even to say right that that. Um, uh, you have just like, you know, you eliminate um, any form of hierarchy or so. That's not really the case, right? Um, now just other other ideas and other texts are privileged uh, than, than before. 
So I, I think that's kind of inevitable, right? You always need some form of approach, some form of focus, some form of interest, and that's what, how a discourse develops and how, hmm. how um, you know, uh, how dialogue and how, um, yeah, how a discourse develops. So it, and, and so I think some, to some extent, like some form of canon is, is inevitable. Hmm. So with regards to your work, both academically and then on the YouTube, if you were pressed, I'm going to press you right now, what, what is your canon, like the three authors or the three main books or five? What are, what are the principal texts that you return to and work from? Well, Chinese philosophy is like this one here. That's a, German, that's a German translation, which I just got hold of. This is German scholarship. See how thick the book is? See how this German. <laughs> 20 times the original text. And um, so that's the Zhuangzi, the core Taoist text that I've been working with for hmm. since I was a student. Okay. Now, in... In Western thought, it's a, a relatively little-known social theorist called Niklas Luhmann, German social theorist. And I've, I've written a few books on him, and, and so these are like my two main, uh, the two texts and two authors or whatever that I'm, I, I would kind of sort of maybe call myself some sort of specialist, and they have most deeply influenced my own philosophy and my own thinking as well so these are really the two core thinkers and then I have a I have an interest in in a wide range of others both from the Chinese tradition and uh, mostly the actually German uh, tradition so in China of course it's when the other Tao is Lao Tzu uh, but also like of course the Confucian texts like Confucius the so-called Analects and other texts and then um, in German philosophy I've always been but I hardly really worked directly as a fan of Nietzsche as well and um, it's hard uh, not I'm to like Nietzsche what's that? it's hard not to like Nietzsche yes. especially in this day and age Right, yes. And then uh, I do also more recently, but I also did this like uh, Hegel. Phenomenology disguises, yes. So I like working with text in the, or in the language that I can read. So that's why I mm. probably work yeah. with Chinese and, and German texts mostly. What What is Lumen doing then, the, the social theorist? What What's his yeah, basic... Contemporary social theorist and maybe offers the most complex contemporary social theory, and uh, it's social systems theory. So I could talk at length about this. Um, um, it's very complex, and it's the idea basically to give you just an impression. He calls himself a radical anti-humanist, which uh -oh. is uh, very uh, sounds very strong, and particularly from American um, perspective and. Uh, the idea is simply put that society doesn't consist of human beings, but of social systems. Social systems are communication systems like politics, law, whatever, academic system. And uh, the idea is, uh, to give you an example, I like the example of the body, right? That traditionally, you could think of the body as consisting of different parts, right? All your parts, your fingers, your hairs, your... Uh, whatever your legs and so forth, and you put the 
of different parts together and then you get a society that is like kind of somewhat to the traditional idea that society consists of all the individuals right you take you and me and everyone else and then you get society but Luhmann is actually strongly influenced by evolutionary biology things society is actually constituted of systems and so you can also think of the body in that way right that the body is constituted of whatever the cardiovascular system the immune system the uh, all kinds of other systems that you have I'm not a biologist and and so you have a much more organic uh, understanding of the body and and all these systems uh, they they function within the environment of the other systems and so it's the the theory is basically about society consisting of these different what he calls them function systems um, and uh, so I find this a very uh, interesting and very actually accurate approach to to contemporary society it fits also the COVID crisis uh, a lot you know where you see particularly in the west right you have all these different systems operating like the science system with all the science about COVID, then the political system that comes up with all these uh, regulations and trying to do something. And then you have the economic system that is, of course, uh, uh, reacting to COVID in its own way. And then um, whatever you have, the media system, everything in the media has to be somehow now about COVID, right? And so you have all these different systems uh, who uh, co who operate at the same time simultaneously none of the system is really in control every system mm. does with its own means what it can and and deals with this situation but there's no central kind of coordination and uh, so uh, that's again like something that you can very much explain with uh, with systems theory and uh, for me the, that's interesting because um, pre precisely because it contradicts the this traditional modern uh, view of society, which is extremely strong in the U.S., that that humans and individuals ought and should be in control, uh, and that they could be in control of society, and and so this theory goes against it and, and says this is kind of a basically a, a narrative that's just a fantasy but it doesn't really fit how modern society works and modern society could actually never work in that way well okay well, when you're talking about society i understand that but when you talk when you start talking about the individual are you just mm. talking about a bunch of uh is the individual just made up of all the different societal systems that they interact with it's not made up of these things but our, the social dimension of our being, I mean, there are other dimensions of our being as well, like, for instance, our physiological or our bodily or our, our mental dimension, right? And they are, again, from a systemic perspective, um, none of them is really in control of the others and none of them is more essential to our being than the others, right? We're very complex and we, we, we consist at least of these three different systemic realms and none of them is in a hierarchical central position nor is one of them in control or more more essential than the others, right? And your body functions according to bodily systemic operations and your mind functions according to psychological feelings. And in society, you have to function according in accordance with the social systems, which are mostly communication systems. So in the yeah. economy, when you, when you make and spend money, uh, you have to you have to function in line with the systemic 
uh, let's say, simply put, rules, structures of the economy. Uh, and um, so, and, and similarly, now we're doing whatever something on media, yeah. and then you know you have to we have we communicate according to this, and then we in other systems, whatever in the intimacy system, when you have a personal relationship, you have to play along the rules of that in order to be able to act. So simply put. Okay. Agency, including individual agency, is not something that causes uh, our causes systems to arise, but other the other way around, the systems with within we within which we exist, be it bodily systems or social systems, allow for human agency to arise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so it's mm -hmm. the other way around, and I think that makes much more sense to see it in, in that way, right? That certain systemic, let's say, structures. Um, be it bodily structures or uh, social structures, allow for human agency to arise rather than the other way around. Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, it's a, simply put whatever you play a, a cards game and then you yeah. follow the rules of the cards game and the, the, then by playing this card game you can become let's say a, a special individual card player who you build your individuality as a card player within within the structures yeah. of that yeah. game yeah when we uh some of the, your hottest episodes are about identity and your notion with a colleague of yours of uh slipping profilicity yes yeah. the profile so right. we're in a media landscape where that is the game that we're playing basically that's well, the, the system landscape makes it most obvious so again like to explain this explain this briefly the, the main idea of, of the book and of the notion of profilicity is um, that well, we construct identity, individual identity, we become what we are, if you want to use that phrase, uh, by using different kind of technologies to, to build notions of selfhood and to build a self. And in, in traditional societies, this was what we call sincerity, which basically means you, you, uh, you sincerely commit to the roles you find yourself in, right? It's in a traditional society, gender roles, family roles, professional roles, whatever, right? And, and there, you, that, that sense of commitment it commit precedes or is the content of your yes. acting that out yes sincerely. and this is how, how you become someone right and you become what you are right you become a good mother or you become a devoted uh, priest or you become whatever uh, um, um, a brave soldier or something like this right and these are these are through sincere commitment to these roles um, and you see this, whatever, in, in, in arts and so forth, you know, the ideal human being is someone who, in one way or another, commits to a role and then becomes who they are. Uh, and then, of course, in modernity, uh, this changes and authenticity becomes the name of the game, right? So the idea is, oh, there's something inherently wrong with sincerity, right? Because um, uh, it should be the other way around. You shouldn't, you know... Uh, derive your identity from something external 
uh, of a role, it should be the other way around. Your inner self should be uh, that which um, informs and 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 grounds your 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 social personality. So um, the idea is, you know, you always have to express yourself uh, authentically, and you have to find or create this true self, and then be in society a kind of a true representation of that true self, right? Mm -hmm. And really, the task now is to, is to find this true self, and then the the more you succeed in expressing this accurately, the more authentic you are. And this is really the model, right? And I guess you're also not that young, I suppose, that you still are also, like myself, very strongly influenced by that model. Isn't yeah. that right? That we also kind of somehow think in order to become like a real individual, to def to have a real identity, we need to pursue originality, we need to pursue authenticity. Originality, authenticity, and... Uh, yeah, and this is the only way to be, uh, to have a true identity, otherwise if you it's you're somehow fake right so that's the yeah yeah the the worry of uh, over worrying about being pretentious or being seen as pretentious or fake right. or, or something like that but when whereas with sincerity there was a commitment going on the one verb that i heard you say in authenticity was there's a quest you, you're, right you're going and you're searching so it's no longer right. this you're tied to a place or to a system. You're now right. liberating yourself, perhaps. Yeah, liberation is also, of course, a very important modern idea, very much tied to this authenticity. You liberate yourself precisely from the regime of these roles. Yeah. That's yeah. what liberation is. You're no longer, you know, these roles are no longer fetters. I think that's an old fashioned word, right? Yeah, They're yeah. no longer the chains. You're no longer chained by these roles. So the, the whole liberation idea, very good, is exactly tied to this quest for. Or being your true original self, mm -hmm. uh, and then the roles are all seen now. Now no longer as you know, wonderful moral standards. Yeah, hats that you put on or masks that you wear. Yeah, exactly. Mask is a prime metaphor. The mask, and you have to sh take off the mask. Right, you mm. have to find that is no mask. Now the main argument of the book is uh, that's the subtitle of the book is identity after authenticity. That basically authenticity. Uh, while we're still so much used to it, is is kind of on its way out, and it's very obvious in this, in social media. Uh, but it's uh, according to our it actually pre our ideas it actually predates social media, um, and um, we trace it back to the uh, basically to the 18th century and um, the emergence. I can maybe talk briefly about it. The emergence of the notion of the picturesque familiar with that idea something is picturesque and there we see for the first time a switch of a certain logic right uh, traditionally if you see like a picture of something a painting of something let's say a, a painting of a person and then you see you look at the at the person and then you look at the painting and then you judge the painting in terms of the person right so you see oh the painting is a great painting because it just looks like her right Mm -hmm. Now, with the notion of the picturesque, this logic is reversed. Now, you look at things, let's say, in the real world, for instance, people or landscapes, in terms of pictures you've seen before, yeah. right? So, oh, this is a great landscape, a great scenery. It just looks like these pictures that I've seen in the magazines or in the museum. Now I need to take a photo, yeah. right? So, and that is, the, that is precisely the, the shift 
from Luhmann, we take this first order observation to second order observation. Okay. So that you judge whatever you see in terms of its representation, in terms of how it has been observed by society. I think in the in modern parlance, we'd use cinematic rather than picturesque. Yes, exactly. Yes. And this, which, as I said, that you can already trace it back to the 18th century, and it's a slow development uh, that takes place. And that, that reverses the whole authenticity thing again, where you now have to, where the standard becomes the representation, the standard becomes the public image. Mm -hmm. And that became very strong in the economy uh, before it actually reached um, so, how value is constructed in the economy. And that's a major influence for us as well. Well, traditionally, you know, something had a value, like Marx calls it the use value, right? You buy a shoe, and then the shoe is just a shoe. And if it's made of material that is expensive, it is very well made, took a lot of time to make it, then you have to pay more for it. But then what happens in the 19th century is the development of brands. You no longer buy just a shoe, right? That happens in the, in the 20th century, particularly in the U.S. Everything is now branded. You just don't buy salt anymore. You don't buy oatmeal anymore. You yeah. buy Quakers. Well, right? and is that and not just the, the an outgrowth of the – there's no longer one person creating this good. Now it's just factory modified. So well, the, the factory it has itself has to become a person or personality. Exactly. Right? Yes, so exactly, it has to do with all these things that you just mentioned, but the result of it is, again, similar to this picturesque thing, that you, you, that you judge a product and the value of the product is determined by the brand, which is already the representation of the product, right? Mm -hmm. So, and of course, we know this very much in the economy, right? Whatever, like, in order to, um, you know, and then the economy is no longer about actual products eventually it's it's about financial products right mm. so it's about um the, the financial markets arise and this is all second order observation right where now where the money is is no longer in the actual things but in what people think about the value of that thing yeah. so through through the shift towards the stock market and through the shift towards branding uh there's a strong shift towards second order observation observe not something directly but how it is observed on the market how it is you know marketed through the brand uh, and that again corresponds to this logic of the of the picturesque and then so that this is all long before social media right that this shift these shifts take place and um, so basically our idea is that the social, that I always say the social media, which is wrong. I just have to say social media. I like the uh, social media. It's yeah. a character. Yeah. Like a villain. <laughs> Bond yeah. villain. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so the idea is that social media are successful precisely, or successful in the way they are, precisely because this shift towards second order observation predates them. So it all it allows individuals to brand, create a personal brands to develop an identity on on the profile level, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why why it fascinates people so much. That's why we spend so much time uh, with the media because uh, it allows us to build identities and we, it allows us also to un, to relate to others and to relate to the world to anything 
in terms of profiles, right? And again, like brands is an earlier form of profile of, of, of products, of commodities. Mm. Um, but now this kind of a wider notion, profile is basically a wider notion of the brand, right? And and so social media uh, have become so successful because they, they are such a great tool, not for, uh, you know, proliferating and uh, practicing authenticity, but for proliferating and practicing profile building. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, which can seem kind of odd to Gen X and older uh, people who are interacting exactly. with it and watching an yeah. entire, well, two generations now who are really emerged in that, uh, not really uh, work towards this kind of sense of substance. Maybe that's unfair, but really pay attention, like the influencer model to the right. form. It's more and more right. about the form. It's more and more exactly. about the signature in your biography yes. that kind of ticks off what you are and who you are. But yes. what, do, you, do you think that that's just inevitable, something that we're going to adapt to? What are kind of the, are you worried about it, like personally, or do you think it's just like... Well, yes and no. I'm also an authenticity person, basically, like everyone of my generation in the West, at least. Um, but I also think that authenticity, and this is strongly influenced by my studying Asian philosophy, is inherently paradoxical and is not better than any of the others, right? I mean, authenticity from the beginning is, I think, an illusion and, you know... Th well, it's this a gesture. It's a gesture and it's also, you know, it's, it's inherently paradoxical, right? You learn to be authentic from other models. So you copy the model of authenticity to become original, right? You read about how to be an authentic person in, 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 in novels. You watch movies about all these people becoming uh, in their quest for authenticity, and then you just copy it, right? So, so authenticity is deeply inauthentic. Originality is deeply unoriginal. And it also causes a lot of problems. Like my main problems as a teenager, I think, uh, you know, psychologically were, were caused by the impossibility to become authentic while having to be mm. authentic, right? Yeah. Uh, so I guess... A, a the, weight, of, the weight of originality is very terrible once you kind of yes, see how exactly. difficult it is. Yeah. Yes, yeah. It's impossible. And um, so, so I, I don't think authenticity is a valid ideal. It's a functional technology for building identity, hmm. despite all its paradoxes, as, just as sincerity was, and just as profilicity is now. So they're, on the one hand, they're all paradoxical, but on the other hand, they all still somehow work, and they allow both individuals and society to function, hmm. right? Okay. Um, so that's also something you can learn from Luhmann and from Hegel and from Taoism, uh, that paradoxes are not dysfunctional. To the contrary, paradoxes are often fun very functional. Their paradoxes they're are showing some sort of tension that, that could be very productive. And exactly. Yes, yes. And it's working. So okay. we can basically even say, just kind of overstating it, but originality and authenticity are not dysfunctional because they are paradoxical. To the contrary, they are, fun they, they are functional because they are paradoxical. Well, because we can never be original, because we can never be authentic, it's such a good thing to, to, to try forever. 
right? Yeah. Well, the, uh, the striving creates a lot of good product, even if it creates a lot of pain. Right? Exactly. Yes. It creates a lot of art, innovation on the exactly. human level, cultural. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And the same is true for sincerity and for, or for, for felicity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Same. So there's also a lot of productivity on social media, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of creativity in branding. Uh, it's a whole new form. It's a whole, it's a whole level of complexity to identity formation and to cre- all kinds of creativity, right? Like, look at the economy, how, how much more productive it became when it switched from simple products to uh, financial markets, right? How mm. much more money was generated? How much more value was generated with this shift in base towards, you know, away from the products towards the basically images of the products in the financial yeah. markets? Well, I guess in, in terms of uh, profilicity or uh, identity in the attention market, which is how I think of it, is that uh, yes. you and I as creators we are competing whether we like it or not for attention uh, exactly. and, and we have to that attention because it's coming from humans will land they'll create another human out of what i'm giving them so That's there exactly becomes my, the my brand but there because it is removed it's tenuous it's ephemeral there might be a bubble that's going to burst with attention like pro felicity what like like the financial market if we can make that uh, metaphor stick could it not be creating something that will collapse upon itself? Do you foresee that? No, I don't foresee that. Of course, like bubbles burst, but um, then other bubbles uh, come up, even bigger bubbles, right? It's all (laughs) just one bubble replacing the other bubble. And uh, I I don't think that the, that, um, so it's bubbles all the way up. Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. Yes. Huh? Wow. Yeah, and um, you you said this very, put this very well about you know about the about the intention importance of attention right and mm. um, um, like these kind of feedback mechanisms and and that's really central to to profilicity right that that we that we always have to see how we are being seen and and then this gives us kind of a guidance and 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 guides the whole. A profile building mechanism, right? Because again, like it's no longer determined by the insight who you are, but it's really determined by how the profile is being perceived. And that's mm. then something you have to live up to. Right? And I mean, we are in the same business. Like I'm now a kind of also influencer, right? right? And then of Whether course, you like it or not. exactly. And then so the development of my influencer persona is uh, is created through these uh, feedback mechanisms, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you incorporate that in your work. You always, well, in, in a lot of your videos, you respond to the response to a previous video and you right. bring up the different comments and you say the name of who they, you, you cite your sources. So you're in this dialogue with the feedback mechanism, which actually, whether you uh, know this or not, that hooks the audience even further because they know that they are a part of what you're creating. So you become right. a conveyor of, uh, or, or almost like a conductor of kind of a circus in a way, uh, your own personal right. circus. But that's exactly the case. I mean, Profilicity has this 
particular on social media, a strongly ad addictive thing. I mean, mm. and then I also, you know, which is like complete, I never did this before in my life, right? You know, I'm constantly, of course, checking, you know, the views and the comments and so forth. So so that's exactly the, this kind of addiction thing that, that the social media, and I have this in the warning at the beginning, right, yeah. of this video, uh, that's what they are created for. But that's really, why is why do we do this? Why is it so... Because it's an identity thing. It, we're just obsessed with this kind of feedback as we were obsessed with authenticity and originality mm -hmm. before. I think really that's why why it's so addictive, why we are so much hooked to it, right? Because it is, it is so essential to our identity building. We look, we, we want mm -hmm. to know who we are. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and that's why we look at these things. And uh, I call this all in the book, we speak of these algorithms, but, um, the, you know, this the pro, it's a mirror of profilicity. This, these feedback mechanisms are the mirror of profilicity, right? In the old times, we had to look into the mirror to see how others see us. Uh, and that was thereby to understand who we are. And now we have to look at the comments and at the feedback mechanisms and at the algorithms that 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 uh, all, all these different media provide us with to find out who we are. Hmm. What what do you see are some of the pathologies? Just like the authenticity quest had its own pathologies. What kind of what are the pathologies that concern you most or interest you most? They are well known, right? It's this addiction thing that we mentioned, okay. right? So it's like super stressful. Um, mm -hmm. Then um, there are many other things, the narcissism that many people have pointed out, mm -hmm. that it's a new form of, but narcissism was equally there in authenticity and well, sincerity. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, Picture of uh, Dorian Gray, hello. Right, yes, yeah. And um, so... Uh, but it's a new form of, of narcissism. And um, uh, th then um, there's also, of course, what people, uh, you know, call, which was also always there, the phoniness, the fakeness that is involved in it, right? Mm -hmm. um, because, but that was all, like, with sincerity comes the problem of insincerity. Everyone has become suspicious of being somehow fake in their sincerity, and everyone that's already you find this very strongly in Confucianism. Uh, you know, you always have to ask yourself that's already at the beginning of Confucius Analects, are you really sincere in your role in Eggment? Are you really sincere as a mother? Are you really sincere as a son? So you always have to question this. And the same thing we have in the West with religion. You know, are you really a true believer? Is your faith strong enough, right? Mm. So is there maybe something insincere? Are you may, may, maybe only praying because you want to go to heaven rather than uh, because you're really devoted to God, right? And uh, then, of course, the same thing in authenticity, right? I, am I inauthentic, right? Is there something fake about me? That is like, like the core thing. And now we have it in profilicity. Because all these things are inherently made up in any of these three <laughs> modes, there's always the big pressure of uh, fakeness being involved, which it is in all the three models. It's inevitable, right? Oh, this 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 persona of me on YouTube. Am I really this? Can I really live up to this profile? Can I really be how the people are seeing me? Is this? And it's, you cannot. Right? And yeah. That's why yeah. Or, or the same thing with being a father or mother. Am I? Am I exactly. good? Am I, I don't know. I I just have to act like I 
do and do exactly. hope for the best. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Is there so any notion of emerge? The problems Sorry? re-emerge. These okay. problems of fakeness re-emerge. The problem of narcissism re-emerges. The problem of uh, addiction re-emerges in in. Oh. In each of these technologies, what does that tell us about the self that we're r- constructing all these selves uh, to actualize? Addictive, well, narcissistic, that's, that's and, and like that's the final chapter in the book. And this, this is we are basically Dao is Paul and I, the co-authors, right? Paul, my co-author. Um, also has his background in Chinese philosophy, um, and we are both specialists on Taoism. So we think that this. Taoist philosophy very early on already, you know, it was a reaction to Confucian sincerity and was developing this idea, which then later on merges with Buddhism. Uh, that identity is inherently paradoxical. And that's why we use this notion of genuine pretending, right? So this, whatever, if you have insincerity, you pretend to be a father or a mother. And through this pretend also in the sense of child play or so you take on this role and you enact it and then you become genuine in this which is of course paradoxical and similarly in authenticity you know you pretend to be original you pretend to be authentic and then you develop a genuineness out of this Mm -hmm. a genuine you know enactment of or dedication to this quest and similarly, of course, in, in, in profilicity, right? You build these profiles, you project these profiles, and then you somehow are genuinely invested in these profiles. And and so you build, and you cannot but. And so this is like really the, the from a DAS mm. perspective, this is the existential condition for everyone. We're all genuinely pretending all the time. And we just have to, understand this and accept it and this this allows us to have some form of to use buddhist terms detachment from identity pressure we understand that it is that it is not possible to be a completely coherent self that the self always is based on this construction element but you still have to try at the same time you you cannot but uh, both for uh, in order to function as an individual and in order for a society to function, develop identity and develop develop uh, identity and, and and build some form of genuineness in and through it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing about um, authenticity, insofar as it is a quest, if we think about it in terms of a quest, the authenticity or the originality. Of that hero, the hero starts as an everyman, uh, you know, kind of uh, very uh, young and smooth, like un, un, unscarred. And then 40 years later, down the road, all of his scars make him up. All of those different contractions of his muscles yes. and the ba- all that, the, the right. time, the sense of time gives right. that... Uh, yes. auth- that character authenticity yes. or gives you yes. that character. You, you, you lived a life. Yes. And I, the, the thing about profilicity insofar as it is embedded in social media is that there's this step of virtuality. Uh, there's a step into a kind of the avatar where we become more and more invested into our avatar. The avatar yes. is more and more real but yes. 
it it seems detached. It seems like there's this inherent detachment, whereas I own all the scars of all of the stupid things that I did in my search for authenticity. I don't know if that profile that I create actually reflects what I earned in creating it. I don't know. Yes, and that is always a thing. Pressing this very well, Benjamin, I like this thing with the scars and so forth. Very Hegelian, by the way. Mm. Um, and yeah. Uh-oh. Uh, anyways, but look, um, I mean, this is said very much, and I s- s- very much sympathize with. I have the same feelings that you just described because we all come from the perspective of authenticity, right? So from the perspective of authenticity, the, 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 the virtual self that you also described very well, it seems to be somehow inauthentic and this scar, scar self uh, seems so authentic. And But I mean, all the scars are also entirely contingent, right? They, they, they come, they, they are yeah. just dependent on, on all these total coincidences uh, that, that, that you kind of stumbled into. And then you develop this narrative because you, you, you interpret everything from the perspective of authenticity, right? Uh, but there's, there's nothing really that, that was kind of due to yourself, right? The, the kind of people you grew up with, what these people did to you and, and the struggles you, you found yourself in, right? They were not made by you. Uh, you I mean, you play, they allowed you just as profilicity to play a role, to become yourself. Yeah. But it's not that you had like more original input into them than you have on the profile. Mm-hmm. Profile, you also have a lot of input and then you get all the feedback. It's simply not the case, Benjamin, that there was more individualist input and control and exercise of autonomy in the SCAR story than there is in the story of the profile. Okay. Okay, okay. But because the profile is happening in this media environment, the the amount of attention that it gets is significantly more than exactly. any time in history. That that's yes. got to be a qualitative change. It is a super change and that's why you could even make the argument these are actually much more real than the few scars you get. Ouch. I mean, you get all this all you get all this feedback from so many people. That should be much much more kind of a, a more objective from yourself than the few uh, bullies you ran into the schoolyard and and uh, who you had to pick a fight with it's just it's just it's i totally agree with everything you're saying it's just there is something that's dreadfully scary about this mm. and and i i see that without um so, i just so i i work that's this scare this is where the Taoism comes in ultimately our thing is therapeutic the idea is to to make you more comfortable with this to to take away your scare yeah. Yeah, well, okay, so the my open question right now and what I do a lot of research into is watching a generation now that has grown up with iPhones in their hand, now coming of age, and they are going on such a fast track into this into this virtual world, which you say is just as virtual as any other world, but even more real because there's so much more going on in there, at least attention-wise. It, yes. It's leading them to not having a slow development into themselves. It's it's rushing things up. And like for an example, this is a pretty uh, rudimentary example. Um, but if a child of uh, 14 writes the bad word, a bad word, 
and onto the internet, then seven years later, that child will, uh, the, the adult will have to pay for what that child did. So there's yeah. no sense of growth. There's no sense of, of uh, you know, moving on to another place. It's the, uh, the profile is always has been, always will be. And you can be judged on one, tw- one tweet, one sentence yes. can yes. destroy your entire reputation. Yes, yes, yes. I just, yeah. it's, so it's like the atom bomb of, of human. That's, that's a very good example too. But um, I mean, again, like similar things happen, whatever, in sincerity, right? You you did something very bad towards your father when you were a kid in a strongly sincere society that is like also, again, to use your other image, leaves a scar forever. And so, yes, I, I don't want to, mm. on the other hand, I'm totally not idealizing profilicity at all. And, and mm. you gave another example that relates to the question you asked earlier, the pathologies of profilicity. And, and that is one. Uh, that is definitely, um, a, 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 uh, you know, and that's also, you know, we have to be very careful what we what we say and what we post. And I hope you'll uh, carefully edit uh, our conversation because we always have to be aware, you know, maybe we said something uh, that that uh, that we better not uh, post in the in the public realm, right? I, we're, we're good so far. I I, I I pay attention to that now, having learned. Yes, <laughs> yes exactly. Right. So that's um, we use the term curation, right? Profiles are. Uh, are very, very, um, how to say, um, uh, you have to pay a lot of attention to create your profile because there's so many pitfalls and and, and dangers uh, involved, just as the one you described. And again, that causes, takes a lot of energy and, and it's also marketable, marketing, marketable, right? All the photoshopping uh, apps or so, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, like in China, this is we have a little section in the book, right? I don't know how this is in the U.S., but there is an. Uh, we start at the beginning like with an article from the New Yorker where someone talks about Chinese photoshopping apps, and uh, in that report, she mentions that of her. Mm, Chinese people, she's a Chinese background, is Chinese as well, that no one spends less than one hour for uh, before photoshopping before they put a photo on their on their uh, social media accounts, Mm -hmm. right? So, Mm -hmm. so that shows how much time you invest and how how careful Mm. you have to be with with curating these profiles. And that's just another aspect of what you said earlier, this example with, you know, uh, when we are, when we are young, we we don't have we we, we haven't learned this, this curating that much. And we haven't been uh you know uh, careful and then and so that's also something by the way i like to go into more we don't really have that in the book but that's an idea i like care how care is essential to all these three identity models care in 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 in, in both uh, uh meanings of uh, that you care in the sense of love what you kind of you know what you're kind of emotionally strongly attached to investing Uh, your investing yourself into right but at the same time where you're very kind of careful where you're very kind of you know um uh, something you worry about right because care has this double meaning particularly in german uh, uh, so this double meaning of having affection emotional uh, attachment to and worry being worried about And so the identity technologies also determine how we care in both senses, in both senses, what Mm. we care about and what we care for and what we worry about. So 
again, you, the example you, you brought up with the teenager doing something stupid and this goes into their profile and then they suffer from it. Uh, it, it, sh it has a lot to do with care, right? With a lack of care on side of the teenager, but also with the immense care that is given to the profile, right? Yeah. It matters so much. We care about it so much. Yeah. So we, uh, th this is a case of the example you described. And it, that's why, again, why it's just has, like the addiction thing. Why is it so intense? Because it, it, it touches on the deepest level, on the identity level. And the, so care, strong care is involved in both, both senses, right? We are mm. uh, the carelessness of the child who posted this and the immense care that society, how much they care about this. There's a aspect I've been playing this game for four years now, actually, uh, four years in one month. Um, there's there's this point in time where if you get enough attention, you become a friend to a bunch of people that you don't know. They, they kind of carry you around. They check mm -hmm. in with you. They have uh, I think it's called parasociality or something like that, mm -hmm. where they have mm -hmm. this imaginary relationship with you that you don't necessarily you don't know about at all. You don't have time to. You can't. Um, and then there's a moment where you might disappoint somebody where you break that image, where they feel personally betrayed for something that you did, um, that they they're assigning all this interpretive weight to. And they I, I've had situations where people are really disappointed in what they constructed as me, but it, mm. it has no relationship with me. Mm. Uh, so I and I don't know how to like tell them like I, I I'm not that I I didn't I didn't disappoint you. You're reading yeah. disappointment into this thing that you've created. And I, right. I wonder about the the role of kind of like the, the iconoclasm of the profilicity, uh, just incorporating that into one's profile of kind of breaking through that, the, the fourth wall to, to wake people up, to, to allow me to be more flexible as something right. that's not a product ultimately. I'm not a product yes. ultimately. Right. Yes. But again, Doug, this is the thing, I think the, this is a core idea in the book that we develop the capacity on the one hand, of course, to identify in this way, which is necessary. Yeah. On the other hand, that we develop the capacity, the capacity of detachment, both yes. regarding ourselves and others, to develop this form of forgiveness, right? To develop, to understand this is all based in pretending. Yes. This is all based in pretense. This is all based in interpretations, as you said. It's play. Yes. Exactly. Huh. Yeah, the um I, I remember once when I understand once we understand the play thing, right, then we can also become again like more forgiving both to ourselves and to others. So with regards to playfulness or what you call genuine pretending, is that the yeah. phrase? You yeah. you're not saying that play is in and of itself insincere. You're not saying that, that being playful and that um making a gesture is all hollow. It's not. It's the way that we it's we have to perform constantly in order right. just to exist socially. So right. once we start to grapple with a uh, a form of playfulness that's not cheeky or tongue in cheek, it's not irony or comedy or satire. It's not that. That's a part of it. But there, what is that then? That that playfulness, that simulation. Yes. And how can we is develop it? that better yeah. for people to understand? 
Many social theorists have said this. Famous, famous uh, sociologist, 20th century Irving Goffman has like a very influential book on exactly this. He uses the metaphorics of the theater to explain uh, how society works, and uh, so. Uh, that, that, so that has been described. You can go back, whatever ancient Greece, to find similar things. So that's that's been long uh, um, recognized, but again, it, it still has because of authenticity in particular, still somehow a bad word, right? So we we, we, okay. we want to go kind of beyond that that uh, playing, and so it, it always seems to be somehow morally suspicious, right? Uh, but that's really something we have to understand that it's impossible not to play. And again, that that truthfulness, genuineness is developed in and through play and cannot be developed otherwise. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's really um, and um, yeah, that's mm -hmm. that's really I think a, a core a core thing to to understand. Well, when when I've been on the hot end of a pitchfork in in the sense of uh, angering a mob of people because a statement of mine reaches so many people and then uh, a group of them collectively decide to castigate me on that, yes. um, it becomes very it. obvious that they're they're performing. They're performing their own role in this yes. play, and then exactly. I choose how I'm going to respond, yes. and I make it even more playful. That's that's right. my. My strategy is eventually just to reveal the playfulness of the whole thing. That's um, yeah, very good, excellent. Yeah, I think that's that's a very good example. Yeah, and without necessarily not taking the issue at heart seriously, there's still a real issue whenever I do course. upset people. But of course, yeah, yeah, and we cannot take things everything we take seriously. We also take seriously in. That's again taking something seriously is something that is enabled through the playing, right? When you play a game, the, the, the seriousness is not something that precedes the game. It is enabled through playing the game. Huh. You cannot take away, you cannot become a serious player without playing. Seriousness is, you know, you, by playing a game, children learn to be very serious yeah. by playing games. And, and, and there's also a clue in how a comic can cut to the truth. Somebody right. who's, who's making a joke can actually get to the heart of the matter because right. they, they, they front load all the pretense. They, they front load all the pretense and then they zip right to the, yes. the core yes. of the matter. That's exactly what comic, comics, and it again has a lot to do with Taoism, um, they make the incongruity obvious. They make, the, the, they make exactly this point obvious that the seriousness is an effect of something that is playful. Hmm. They, see, they, they show the combination of the seriousness and the playfulness. So they show the incongruity. Uh, that's what, what I mean. That's according to the current humor theory. Humor functions through incongruity. Yeah. So um, comedians reveal the incongruity that underlies human existence and human identity. Mm -hmm. And um, that's why we like them so much. At least so I like them. Well, yeah, not everybody does, but they're liked well but enough to make a living. Those who don't of them. like them are those who are dead serious, like people <laughs> who are extremely religious or something like this, who mm -hmm. don't want to be, who don't want to be informed about the incongruity of their own existence, who don't want to be informed about the incongruity of their beliefs and so forth. It. it it seems like this uh, this incongruity is a core principle of what you're calling Taoism. 
Right. Could you, I know the symbol. The the the, the oh, yin yeah, yang. Yeah. Is, yeah. So yeah. there's there's something about the marriage of opposites, or there's something. What what is this? What is this thing that it's revealing or staking its claims on? Um. Well, okay, that's my. It's not only mine, Paul, and my uh, take on um, on Taoism uh, is <laughs> so. This Yin and Yang thing is something maybe different, and it comes. Okay. It's also much later um, a symbol, but nevertheless, Yin and Yang is already in early Taoism is um, is very um, central to the idea now. Mm, there is yin and yang also has to do with the idea of transitoriness. Uh, so it has to these two elements that you described. Number one, the the uh, has more elements, as you ri- rightly said, the kind of the the integration of opposites, which is incongruity, right? In, in the, the two th- that you have two opposite things that are integrated into one. So that's incongruity. Of course, as you correctly say, this this is incongruent somehow or incongruent. Now, um, in addition to that, uh, yin and yang is also a sequence that everything is part of of constant change. Hmm. That everything is is is, uh, is 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 transforming, right? Life and death is like a transformative Which is- process. Not necessarily the same thing as the Western idea of progress or progressivism. No, it's not, uh, because progressive has this idea that everything gets somehow better, right? And and uh, uh, in the, the 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 transformation is just that everything is constantly transforming, so there's not necessarily progress involved. Okay. Correct, but that also means that there is no something like a, a stable, eternal, everlasting identity of something hmm. mm-hmm. which you also find in buddhism and so forth so so that also uh, contributes to to this notion of incongruity that what you are is coming from something else and you will be changing into something else and you're constantly hmm. subject to change it's nothing hmm. is uh, which is different from the you know for instance the, this uh, traditional uh, particularly Christian idea, but you find it also in Eastern religions and Hinduism also, the idea of this um, immortal self that is somehow unchanging. Hmm. And Taoism is very different from that, that it, that it recognizes the, the, the transitoriness of everything, including identity, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. especially identity. So there's that, no sense of essence hmm? at all? Or... Yeah, no, it's not like the, the the ideas again, like that everything changes, like whatever you know, uh, everything is subject to 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 coming into being and going out of being, to 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 uh, to, to living and dying, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's not a bad thing from a Taoist perspective. That's a good thing. How? What did? Um, why did you end up being a Taoist? Was was what was the resonance or? What made it feel like home, if I can advance that that's what it feels like? It's strange. I mean, just because I'd studied it so long, I guess. But then also, of course, the other way around. Why did I study it so long? Because I found it somehow interesting or so. And I mean, I'm not like in a, I'm not a practicing Taoist. They're also like. How do you practice that? You like 
It, meditation oh. and uh, you know there are Taoist monasteries and and there it's a very long tradition uh, for two thousand years. Roughly. Is there like church services that you go and Not meditate? Church, so they have monasteries, right? So oh. and they have uh, they have all kinds of similar to Buddhism practices that yeah. have can be as I said meditational bodily practices, but also like chanting texts and reading certain texts and uh, of course whatever unlike the buddhists they grow their hair you don't really cut their hair and um so all kinds of of practices and that's a that's a, i don't really know because i don't do it mm-hmm. uh and um so in this sense i'm not a practicing taoist uh, at all uh, but i'm philosophically you know i build my, my own ideas on my readings of Taoist of the traditional Taoist philosophical text. So in that sense, I am a Taoist. Hmm. In a philosophical um, sense, not in a practical sense. Well, what are you practically then? You're a professor, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I I guess you're practicing Taoism insofar as a professorial life allows. Well, of course, I mean, I also teach Taoism, but not so much here. I, I now hear kind of going back to teaching more Western stuff because it feels kind of odd to teach Chinese <laughs> philosophy to Chinese people as a Westerner. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.